The Commonwealth Club's annual Gala and Distinguished Citizens Awards will celebrate four outstanding community advocates and humanitarians who stand shoulder to shoulder with those they serve. Join us on October 28th for an in-person and virtual event and support the club. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California and today's discussion with legendary television director James Burroughs. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial and Michelle's co-host for the show. At the Commonwealth Club, we're producing hundreds of programs a year on a wide variety of issues online as well as as well as many in-person programs. So head over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for more upcoming programs as well as video and audio of our past events. If you're watching us live on YouTube, add your questions to the chat box and we'll work some of them into our conversation here today. Just a reminder, today's program is part of our Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. Now here's Michelle Miao. She's the producer and host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Hello again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John. And thank you to all of you for joining us for this special program this afternoon. We are in for such a treat. We'll have a great conversation about good TV, great TV. I know you all remember what that is. <laughs> well, our guest today doesn't really need an introduction. All I have to do is bring up some of the best TV shows in America, such as Taxi, Will and Grace, Friends, The Bob Newhart Show, News Radio, and many, many more. The list goes on. So here to talk about showbiz and his new memoir is James Burroughs, author of Directing James Burroughs. James, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, happy to be here. I think a good place to start is really where the memoir begins, and that is um, getting to know you before you knew what you wanted to be before you grew up. So let's start with getting to know your, your childhood, growing up with a father who's also a legend, and we get introduced to your father actually as a radio writer, in which I have to admit, some of us don't actually know what that is. <laughs> so talk to us about your, your father and what it was like to grow up with um, a legend. Uh, it was daunting. Uh, and, you know, it was, he, he was a legend in New York City. Uh, we, 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 both my sister and I were born in California. And then in, in like 1945, we moved to uh, New York. And my mo uh, mother and father divorced. And then uh, my dad came after that to do Guys and Dolls. And, uh, uh, you know, he was dad to me, but I was, you know, trundled along with my sister to rehearsals. And I didn't know what was going on. Neither did she, uh, you know, dad would bring us there an hour before he would take us to dinner and we would run around the theater and see these people on stage acting and not knowing quite what it was. So uh, little did I know that he taught me while I didn't know I was learning. Uh, he, um, uh, so, uh, you know, we, uh, he would have uh, great New Year's Eve parties. And, uh, you know, uh, Truman Capote was there and Cole Porter and John Steinbeck and Eddie Comden and Adolph Green and all the literati in, in New York. But I was, you know, I had no really I, 
idea of how who they were or you know what shows they did because I I didn't see a lot of theater when I was growing up and mainly my grandmother took me so uh it was uh he was my dad and uh you know as I grew older there was no way I was going to go into his business uh you you were not right in the book of course you you're you're family's Jewish and, and you were bar mitzvahed when you were in your 40s. So we should begin by wishing you a good new year. Oh, thank the you. Um, um, so yeah, what I found interesting was you said you, no way were you going to go into stage work. You did end up doing some stage work, but of course then the story really takes off when you get to TV sitcoms. But there's stuff from the stage that you saw and that you you were a part of that you do bring to the sitcom. You talk about the live audience. Can you talk about the things you you, you drew from stage work into your sitcom work? Yeah, after uh, um, uh, after I I graduated from the Yale School of Drama because I, I went there in the early '60s because I had a student deferment and didn't have to take my physical. Eventually, I took my physical. And uh, I was uh, let go because I think I was too funny. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I started by stage managing, assistant stage managing. And then as a stage manager, you get to direct the understudies. So I got the sense of what directing was. And then watching my father, I saw him. And uh, what I, you know, what I eventually did in television is it's a film, a stage play. It's I do theater. I'm a theater rat. I was brought up in the theater. I know theater. I love opening nights. And every Tuesday or every Friday when we shot a show, it was opening night for me. So all that, uh, all my upbringing was perfectly right for the for the form that I went into. In fact, I was um, directing a production of uh, Forty Carats with Joan Fontaine in Wallingford, Connecticut, and turned on the TV one Saturday night, and there was a Mary Tyler Moore show. And uh, I I looked at it, and they, they were doing 20, 22, 25 minutes in a week, and I was doing a two-hour play in a week. And I said, I can do that. And if you read the book, you know I had a connection with Mary Tyler Moore, a very deep connection on the first show I ever worked on. And uh, um, so I wrote her a letter, and they brought me out to to California and to do one show that was 1974 and you know the rest is history but i will say i was by misfit in my 40s but um the the, the because if you ask a 13 year old kid a 13 year old jewish kid do, do you want to be by misfit they're going to say no you can't ask them you got to say so my parents who were kind of agnostic just said that and i said no so the Charles brothers who created Cheers with me said that I was the only man they knew that was by mitzvah at 47 and lost his hair at 13. <laughs> Many of us in the, uh, especially in the LGBTQIA plus community, I mean, you bring up Mary Tyler Moore. A uh, big question is, uh, you know, what was she like? And you know, share more stories of Mary Tyler Moore and exactly uh, kind of what, your job was especially right like the first gig uh breakfast with tiffany's uh 
Well, the, 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 I was the assistant to the assistant stage manager on Breakfast at Tiffany's, a musical based on the Truman Capote book or novel, Let, I think they call it, that my father wrote. And it was not Abe's best work. But uh, they had they cast uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Chamberlain as the leads. So you had Laura Petrie and Dr. Kildare, who were two huge television stars back then, and people from California. So I was in charge of the two of them, making their life easier, making sure they had their lunches, making sure they knew their lines. I ran lines with them, making sure they knew when they came off stage that they had to change. So I was like the liaison between between them and uh, the production. And uh, uh, the the show went out of town. It, it did a, a lot of business, big business, because of the two people. But David Merrick didn't like the show, so he fired my dad. And um, I said to my, I said to my dad, "Is it okay if I stay on the Titanic?" And he said, "Sure." So I stayed on. They brought in Edward Albee to rewrite my dad, not not your major musical comedy person. And Joseph Anthony to direct, so I, I stayed on. And rather than go back out of town, we previewed New York, and the show uh, opened on a Monday night in New York previews, and we were hooted off the stage. The audience hated us, and so when I was waiting in the wings for Mary to come off, she would come off and throw her arms around me, crying. It was just the worst experience for her. So David decided to close the show after four previews, which was the Wednesday night. And I sat with her at Sardi's at the wake and waited until Grant Tinker, her husband, came uh, from California. And so we, Mary and I formed this bond of, um, you know, we had this relationship at the core. So when I did write a letter to her, she knew who I was. She knew my work. I had run a theater in San Diego for a couple of years. And so she gave me the opportunity to do one show. And she was she was great. In fact, the show, just before we shot the show, the first show, the first Mary Tyler Moore I ever did, first show I ever did, she came over to me and said, we feel our investment in you has worked out. So she was, in essence, my champion. And... uh you know, she took a risk. They took a risk on hiring me. I had not done any TV and I had to spend four months learning the technical aspects of it, which is the camera work, how to cover the show, because you have three cameras rolling simultaneously. So you have to know what you have to get all the comedy and all the shots. And so um, she was they were wonderful with me. And, you know, and Grant. After they divorced, he and I became good friends. Unfortunately, Grant passed away about five years ago. And um, they, they were wonderful to me. You you do talk in the book about that kind of training period and, and on the job, watching other directors do shows, um, and that other directors were brought in through in the same way at, at the MPM shows. Was that normal for sitcoms work, or was that uh, kind of a Mary Tyler Moore Productions uh, unique approach? No, I think it was normal. I don't think, you know, John Rich, who did All in the Family, I don't think he did them all. I think other people did them. And uh, the resident director is the guy, you know, 
uh, John was the resident director, but he didn't do all the shows on on All in the Family. And Jay Sandrich, my dear mentor, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year, a wonderful man who took me under his wing. And uh, I was eternally grateful to him for all the help, uh, all the help uh, he gave me and what he taught me. He did 75% of the Mary Tyler Moore shows. So they had some, you know, he kept them uh, in a working, they had a working relationship. They, they, when a new director came in on that show, there was some testing. Yes, there was testing of the new director. But if you played by the rules of the show, you were accepted. And that is something that Jay taught me. And that is something I did. And uh, now I set the rules of the show, so it's a lot different. But back in those days, you you had to play, you had to play by the rules of the show, and not worry if you're going to be asked back next week. You had to, you had to put some stuff in there and create some stuff and make stuff funnier to to really to really succeed. I kind of want to follow right up on that because you're both talking about the resident director and, and you talk a lot about the right chemistry on the set and among the cast and the, on the, the staff and all that. Um, but you also touch on your, your one stint uh, directing a Laverne and Shirley and why and you were asked to do more and why you said no. Could you tell us a bit about that? I was, uh, um, I was hired because of my reputation on the Mary show, uh, I was Gary Marshall because Gary Marshall and Jim Brooks were close. And, you know, all the comedy writers were close, even though they worked at different entities. And so Gary brought me over to Laverne and Shirley. And I did about, uh, you know, I did 10 total of 10 and I had a great time with Cindy and Pen- Penny, Cindy and Penny and David and Michael and Eddie Mecca and Phil Foster, who knew my dad, and Betty Garrett, who I'd worked with before. And I really liked doing the show, but there was always tension on that show. And uh, Gary Marshall took me to lunch at Oblast, which was off the Paramount lot. And he asked me if I wanted to become the resident director. And I said, I, I had to pass. I you know, had other avenues to explore, but I didn't want to be... It was just there was a lot of tension on that show that I didn't want to be a part of. So that's why I passed on that. Just to go back to your dad very quickly, you had mentioned earlier about, uh, especially before you knew what you wanted to, to do to be before you grew up, um, not wanting to get into the industry. I wanted to ask about eventually getting into the industry, but how your relationship with your father may have changed over time. You do mention your father's alcoholism and you know, early on in the memoir. And so wanted to ask, you know, kind of, yeah, share with us how your relationship with your father changed over time, especially as your career progressed. Uh, so, you know, my dad uh, did have problems uh, with alcohol early on, but eventually he gave it up in the, in the seventies and uh, he was uh, sober for like uh, 15 years till he died. Uh, uh, It was, you know, since we lived with my mom, uh, we we didn't see it as much. We'd go to dinner with my dad, but both my sister and I knew and our stepmother would tell us that. And uh, 
when I, you know, my dad saw me work. He came out to see a Bob Crane show that I did in 1975, maybe. And, but at that time he was starting to have the, he started to have the beginning effects of dementia. And, um, uh, he, you know, he was very sweet. He was very complimentary. And then, you know, he saw the beginning of Cheers and he, I didn't think, you know, he didn't see the success on Cheers. He did see success on Taxi, but on Cheers, which was uh, 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 my first show that I uh, had control over with the Charles brothers, my dear friends, he, he didn't really see that. He did see the pilot and he, and he called me and he said, I wish the bartender had more dirt under his fingernails. And I kind of understood what he meant because Teddy, Teddy was not an athlete, not at all. He was a far surfer from far sewer from Carnegie Mellon. I took him to his first baseball game. I had a, you know, we hired Fred Dreyer to be on the show. So as a sportscaster, so Teddy could see what a peacock Fred was. So because Sam alone was, is a peacock. So all that stuff. So, so my dad was right. And unfortunately he passed, he passed in 1985 and really didn't see, um, wasn't aware. I mean, cheers won the Emmy the first year, but my dad was, uh, uh, was not, not in a good mental state. So, uh, he didn't see that. So it's the one regret. I wish he could have seen my success as I saw his. You were certainly a success before Cheers came along, but Cheers was just kind of stratospheric once it once it hit. Um, and uh, so, take us into because you mentioned the Charles brothers or the brothers as you you call them in the book. Um, tell us how that came together and 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 the formation of Cheers. Um, we uh, the Charles brothers and I had were on Taxi. I was the resident director, and they were the producers. Believe it or not, we met before on the Phyllis show. They were story editors on the Phyllis show. So I had met them there, but I got to know them on on Taxi, which was probably the most difficult show I ever worked on. And for them, too, because um, we had Jim Brooks was doing a movie the first year. And so he wasn't around all the time. And then Ed Ed was there. He was a wonderful writer, but he had certain ideas and Jim had other ideas. And Ed would put his ideas in and the gym would come and change them. It was all for the better of the show, but it was difficult to work. And I had I had to deal with that. Plus, I had to deal with Taxi being the first four camera film show. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Newhart and Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days were all three cameras, three film, three film cameras rolling simultaneously. Taxi, because the set was so big and there were seven major characters. We added a fourth camera so I could cover, I could get more of the original the first time we shot it. I could get more reactions and more, uh, I could get the jokes more easily having more cameras. (laughs) And then the set was huge, which was another reason we needed four cameras. And then I had an interplanetary cast. I had people from, you know, different walks of life. I had theater rats like Judd and Mary Lou and Danny 
and Chris Lloyd. Danny and Chris Lloyd were in Cuckoo's Nest, and Mary was in uh, Mary Lou was in uh, Breeze. And um, then I had a boxer, Tony Danza. And then I had uh, uh, people call him a comic, but Andy Kaufman was a performance artist. So it was difficult to try to mold these people into the homogeneous group that I like. I like my cast to love one another. And because if they love one another, that'll transmit across the screen. So it, it was difficult. You know, fi- we finally got there midway through the first year. Everybody was because everybody had, you know, different things. Andy, Andy Kaufman uh, had day night reversals. So as a as a comic, he would stay up performing and writing till five in the morning. So Andy didn't have to come in until one o'clock and people in the cast resented that. I didn't because I that that's what you had to do to make the show work. So. Um, you know, and there was also dealing with Andy's alter ego, Tony Clifton. And uh, so it was it was a really difficult show for me. And I think difficult for the Charles Brothers, too. Whose idea was it to bring in Christopher Lloyd and his character of Reverend Jim? Well, um, it, it was a it was an episode in the first year where they the writers decided they wanted to. Uh, uh, have Latka get married so that he could stay in the country. Like it was Andy Kaufman, who was uh, uh, the mechanic. So in order to do that, they had someone to perform the ceremony. So I think Bobby Wheeler, Jeff Conaway's part, knew of this guy, Reverend Jim, who was not a drug addict. He was he was drugs, had ruined his mind, but he hadn't he, he didn't do him anymore. That's the only way we could get away with that character. But he was a child of the 60s. So they, they, I was there for Chris Lloyd's audition and he walked in the room in the same outfit he wore in the show. We didn't provide it for him. That was his outfit. And every day he came to rehearsal in the same outfit, never changed it. And I thought, whoa, this guy's a little freaky until Friday night after we shot the show. We we had because we had so many young kids on that show. They always had a party upstairs, and Chris Lloyd showed up at the party with a nice white shirt, tapered jeans, and cowboy boots. And I knew it was all an act. But um, it was one of the extraordinary ca- uh, characters on television. You also uh, described Taxi as challenging for a lot of reasons. Share with us why. Yeah, because. Uh, as I said, the uh, it was difficult to, you know, get that cast to pull the, you know, we're all in a rowboat and we're rowing. And I'm the coxswain, you know, rowing through the, the, the stormy seas. And uh, uh, it, it was difficult to get everybody to row together. But eventually through guile and psychology, everybody came aboard and uh, it was you know, it was one of the funniest shows I ever did. I did, I think, 75 of them because I left in the fourth year to do a movie. And then in the fifth year, I did Cheers. So um, it was, you know, it was just difficult because it was also my first really coming out show. I was never a resident director before on any show. And I was um, 
this was a show that I was the resident director on. So I just wanted to follow up very quickly. There's a line in the memoir, though, I, that I deeply connect with, which is you found it difficult also because um, telling the, the stories of taxi cab drivers and and then connecting that back into the show. I had never thought about, I guess, cab drivers in this way. And there's something that you also wrote about how making characters extremely relatable even though they're fictional characters. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you need to get your audience to identify with the characters. So you have to put, they have to have vulnerabilities. They all, you know, in taxi, they all had vulnerabilities. Um, you know, the, the one, the one major vulnerability that all of them except Judd Hirsch had was they all aspired to get out of the garage. They all had dreams. In the pilot, Judd, the character of Alex, says, you know, look over there. She's an art dealer. That's a boxer. That's an actor. I'm the only one who's a cab driver here. They all had aspirations to get out. So that was the vulnerability that they all had. You knew they weren't going to get out. You knew Ralph Cramden was never going to succeed in anything he tried. He will always be a bus driver. But that's that's his frailty. And so that's important. And uh, so all, all those characters had that. And that's how you that's how you get an audience in. That's how you draw them in. So after Cheers and after that one movie, excuse me, after Taxi and that one movie, you do Cheers. So how did Cheers come about and how how did you go about constructing it with the, the brothers and uh, kind of crafting that that? more I should say molding kind of the world of the characters and, and uh, their setting. Uh, so after the third year of Cheers, uh, we, we, the Charles brothers and I had the same agent, a man named Bob Broder, who's so powerful that he's only referred to as Broder and sometimes Darth Broder when he really gets mean. Um, he said, you guys should do a show. So NBC, who was now being run by Grant Tinker, they knew he knew about us because the Charles brothers started at MTM too, and they they gave us a deal to do a show. And so the Charles brothers and I sat around for a long time discussing what the show would be, and we were big fans of Faulty Towers, and uh, 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 we thought about doing a show about a hotel. And then we thought maybe the main part, uh, the, the part of most part that show would take place in the bar of the hotel. And maybe we don't want to do a hotel. Maybe we want to do a bar, show about a bar. And we talked about a bar in, bar, in Barstow, California, halfway to Vegas, because you get all the types, the weirdos going there and the people coming back, some stars, you know, who perform there. You could do that. And then since all three of us were huge sports fans, we said, let's do a sports bar. And then when we decided on that, we decided uh, it had to be in a rabid city. So we talked about uh, either Philadelphia or Boston because New York had been, there are a lot of shows set in New York, especially, and since he had just come off taxi. So uh, uh, Glenn Charles was visiting Boston uh, and he he was doing location work and he wandered into the Bull and Finch, which was downstairs. 
And so he found the locale for the bar. And then we talked about the characters. And, you know, we did a lot of research. We went to bars. We went to a lot of bars in L.A. There are not a lot of those kind of bars that are in Boston. The bars in L.A. are a lot different. And so we, you know, we we wanted to do uh, uh, the other thing special with that show is we wanted to do an evolving relationship. We wanted to do a, uh, a Tracy Hepburn relationship. Uh, and, uh, and we wanted to, and we wanted it not to stay in the same place. We wanted it to evolve. So we, you know, we, we, we had this, these characters, Sam and Diane. And, um, originally when the boys went off to write it, Diane Chambers was a, a woman, uh, who Sam worked for, a very tough woman in Suzanne Plushed vein. And, um, when, when they came back, when I came back from a vacation, the script was on the table, was on my doorstep and I read it and it was amazing. And I called them and I said, you brought radio back to television because it was so literate. And they created the character of Diane Chambers. And we had talked about character of Norm because everybody knew a Norm in the bar. It's one, you know, just one more, just one more on my way home. You know, those guys, they, we, they, we talked about coach, you know, an old player that Sam used to have. We knew about Rhea Perlman. So we created the character of Carla. And so we wrote the script and NBC loved it. And uh, the rest is 11 years of history. It, it, I mean, it was just such an amazing show and it's a show that, uh, general, I mean, you take away one of the central characters when when uh, Shelley Long leaves the show. It would have been a surprise that show lasted, you know, in, in the normal sitcom world, if it lasted another two years. But it it thrived in from the uh, for another six years. Um, were you worried about making that shift, or was this like, a, okay, here's a chance to do something else we wanted to do with it? Yeah, we were we were scared out of our shot glasses. We were. Uh... You know, because the, you know, Sam and Diane drove the show. You know, people would ask me, you know, well, what's 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 happening with Sam and Diane and stuff like that, and you know, we knew they were the juggernaut. So uh, when Shelley said she wanted to leave, we were devastated. You know, it was we didn't quite know what to do. Uh, so we, we thought about it and we decided to go back to the first permutation, which was Sam working for a woman. So the boys went off again and wrote the script and came back with the script. And when we told our casting director, Jeff Greenberg, we want Sam working for a Suzanne Plachette type. First words out of his mouth were Kirstie Alley. And None of us knew knew her. I knew I knew I didn't know her personally, but I knew she had worked in front of an audience because I had so, uh, seen her do Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at the Mark Taper Forum out here, uh, a theater out here, and she was amazing. So I knew she had the gumption for that. And you know, we saw her, and she she came in to read, and she read with uh, Rhea and uh, Teddy. And 
Teddy came up. They came up after to discuss it. Not Kirsty. We 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 let her go. And Teddy said, "I want to hug her." And uh, we thought that was interesting because that was not the intent of the character. So we then um, uh, we then then yeah, we waited a couple of months, started writing scripts because Kirsty had auditioned in. Uh, uh, right after the season, season five had wrapped. So that was in uh, May and June that she auditioned. So uh, we, we, we did a, we, we did the first show and the, we had written her as a Martinette, a really strict, tough woman. She came in and, you know, Teddy had the great line when he first, the great line when he first met her, when he goes, boo you know, because that's not what he's expecting of the person. And she was just mean, incredibly mean to him. And it wasn't the first two days, it wasn't really working. And we didn't quite know why. We 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 didn't, you know, we kind of forgot that Teddy said I want to hug her. And so the rehearsal of this end of the second day. Kirsty has to go into her office and because it, it was Sam's office, but it became her office since she now was running the bar. She goes to her office and she turns, the knob doesn't work. You know, she's very, she's very strident. She said, I have to go to my office and work and the knob doesn't work. So all of a sudden she goes, it's not working. It's not working. So all of a sudden that opened our eyes. We said, oh my God. This is a woman who thinks she's tough, but she's a puff guy, you know, a puff a powder puff on the inside. So the rest, again, the rest is history because uh, we use that and we, you know, we made, we made a definite choice not to have, when Shelly left, not to have another waitress and Sam not to be in another relationship, although he pursued and it was, you know, just for laughs. But, you know, we, we we got lucky. We got the right person. We were very lucky on that show. When Nikki passed, unfortunately, at the end of year three, we we were then in the schedule of falling family ties. And we said, we're not going to go older. We're going to go younger because the breakout character of family ties was Michael J. Fox. So we wanted maybe to get, we went younger. Woody came in, came in for his audition. He blew his nose. That was the first thing he did. Everybody started laughing. And then we were lucky enough to get B.B. Newworth, you know, who Glenn Charles had seen at Upstairs at the Downstairs and knew about her as Fraser's, you know, relationship. So we were we were incredibly lucky on that show. And uh, it doesn't always happen. But um, we were, you know, we ran six years with Kirsty and only five years with Shelley. And that and also. You got to see, because Sam and Diane were not driving the show, you got to see how dynamite the rest of the cast was. Johnny and George and Kelsey and Bibi and Rhea. And uh, uh, it, it just was, and Woody. Woody getting married and, uh, you know, it was amazing. 
John wasn't joking before the program began when he shared that we could talk to you for hours. I mean, he said six hours, Um, but I do want to get into some other mega shows, you know, one particular that changed the world and another script that you said, uh, you know, so good. I mean, it was so good at the time you didn't have time to direct it, but you knew that you had to. And so that show many people know as friends, (laughs) Um, talk to us about friends and, you know, the, the, the science behind it. I think, I mean, why the show really, I, I think changed people, but also people love it. People will never forget it. People continue to love it and so on. Um, I had nothing to do with the creation of that show. It was written by Marta Kaplan and David Crane, and it was sent to me at the end of uh, pilot season of 1994. And I read that script and it was just amazing. In fact, that pilot script, from what I read to what was on the air, was 95%. Uh, You know, I didn't know that at the time until I went back and found, I had an old copy of the pilot and I read the pilot. And 95% of what was on that page from the original script ended up as being the pilot of the show. Uh, It was smart. It was literate. It told three stories in a half hour rather than two. It, um, it, it's casting. Uh, I use an example of how much luck is involved in casting because those six people were available at the end of pilot season of 1994. So that'll tell you how much luck is involved with the right actor being being available at the right time for sh- the part that comes along that he's right for or she's right for. And I only did 15 shows. Um, but I, I would have done more, except I had a production company at that point, and I had to do the shows that were coming out of the production company. I, I would have done more because I love the kids. I love the writing. The writing on that show was genius. And it took nine years for the Academy to realize it and give give them an Emmy. Because in the beginning, when that show started, people didn't like it. That people were saying, oh, my God, it's Generation X. they're They're just pretty people, you know. They didn't realize how gifted actors they were and how comedic actors they were and how genius the friggin' writing was. And I, I've bitched about this for, it'll be 30 years in 2024 because that show was just brilliantly written. And I, you know, I loved working with the kids. I'm still friendly with them. They still call me Papa. Uh, I, I, I put my stink on them when I, when I did the show, I did the first four shows and I said, maybe did eight shows the first year. And then I did a few other shows. I did the, Prom video, which is one of people's favorites. And uh, I, I've always maintained contact with them and, and the writers, too. And it's just a show that will keep appealing to it, young people. That's what drives the audience. And as you know, the people who started watching that show in 94 are now parents. And their kids are watching the show. So it's a it's it's an endless cycle because it holds up. It's still it the one thing it doesn't hold up is the fact that 
nobody sits around and talks anymore because if you have six people in a coffee house, they're all on their phone. On Friends, they had to relate to one another. You know, the the phones were, uh, I, I think there were car phones then, but they were like shoes, you know, huge shoes with a with an aluminum stick sticking out of them. So, you know, that's, you know, and the and the stories are universal on on that show. So, uh, I I I I only did fifteen, but people always say, you know, oh, I love Friends. I love that you you know created that. Show. I didn't create that show. I, I I that show was created and sent to me, and I somehow put my stink on it and somehow enabled that cast. They came together rapidly. They 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 grabbed the oars in the boat and they rowed almost from almost from the first show and they were in tandem they loved one another they helped one another they had incredible suggestions when i worked with them that only made me look better so i had a great time i want to jump ahead of them to another show that was groundbreaking um and that of course is will and grace so how did you first get involved in that? And when did you, what made you think this show is not only something you want to be involved in, you directed every single episode of that show, both the original run and the, uh, the, uh, when you re- upped in the, in the 20 teens. So how did that come about for you? Uh, it was, uh, the script was sent to me by Warren Littlefield uh, in 98, I think late 97. And it was his idea that Max and David, Max Muchnick and David Cohen had written a pilot for them that didn't um, work, but they had three different couples in the pilot. And one of the couples was Will and Grace. So I think Warren told the boys, why don't you go write a series about these two? So the script was sent to me and I loved it. And I, I wanted to do it. And uh, I took the boys to lunch. And when I take people to lunch, they think they're auditioning me, but nah, 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 nah. I'm auditioning them because I want a writer to defend his material, not be defensive about it. So we hit it off, and uh, the pilot, the episode was through the roof. The test audience we had three days before we shot it loved it, and the show when we shot it loved it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I wanted a kiss at the end of the show. Um, uh, uh, Will and Grace kiss at the end of the show because I wanted, um, cause I, because I, I knew that 75%, uh, 25% of the country wouldn't watch the show because of the characters, you know, it, it was a, it was a situation comedy that happened to have two two gay characters, and I knew that would turn off twenty five percent of the country. But I thought if it was so funny, I thought if I could get people just to watch, you know, maybe one ten minutes of a show, they'll see how funny it is, and they'll hook into it. And I, I, I we put a kiss at the end of the first episode between Will and Grace. You know, there was. You know, thinking maybe the audience is thinking, well, maybe Will will become a straight man and marry Grace. Never in our heads, but it was, you know, it was out there. So, um, uh, and we never, 
the three of us, Max, David, and I, we never thought about proselytizing at all on that show. Again, it was a sitcom that happened to have two gay characters. And we never did. Occasionally, we did a show about uh, conversion therapy or a show where Will got so upset with Jack, he called him a fag. And so it was the relationship of two boys, how they dealt with it. But it was never a proselytizing show. And we never set out to change the world. You know, we like to say Ellen kind of opened the door and we came through and busted it, busted it wide open. And I, I, I didn't know how, how much of effect that show had until I was on Thursdays, which the, was the night that Will and Grace was on. I would drive carpool for my 13 year old daughter. And I um, would pick up, you know, four, uh, three other kids, and we'd be on their way to school. And invariably, one of the kids would say to me, what's on Will and Grace tonight? And I knew that this show was being watched by kids before they had a precondition of what they're, you know, of, of gay people. And I thought to myself, wow. This is this is something that I had I had no idea what happened. Neither did the boys. And, uh, you know, then when Joe Biden came out and said we had done more to promote the gay agenda than than anybody else. I was I was incredibly. uh, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I was shocked. And incredibly flattered that 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 came out because we never set out to do that. We set out to do a funny show. We like to say we did a fairy tale, literally and figuratively. We and we, you know, we we did a show with jokes that broke the television screen. They were so the laughs were so big by four characters who you could have never you could have never done those jokes on other shows. You'd called Will and Grace one of your most proudest moments of your career. And I'm listening to you talk about, you know, what it's done, right? Like for LGBTQIA plus people. And now thinking about where we're at in pop culture, but also politically, um, how do you feel about, you know, the the jokes that landed, uh, the stories that were told? I feel like in today's time, it's a it might be a little bit more sensitive, I guess, is where I'm trying to go. Um, do you feel, do you feel that that there's been, you know, a change in that, that, that if you could share with us the creative process behind it, if that if you ever got stuck or how you get unstuck, if you ever felt like you were in a more of a political situation than you were creating really good, a really good script or a really good or really good TV. Well, you know, when we first started the show, uh, uh, gay rights isn't where it is now. You know, it's 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 come a long way now, and so uh, it was that we had it. We were dealing with different things back then. You know, it was there were a lot of people who weren't aware of it, and so by by dint of the show, people became more aware of it, and now. As with the reboot, you know, it didn't do as well because 
the agenda isn't the same. The, the gay people are more more accepted now, and uh, um, it, when 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 it, when it first happened, it was it was equally as funny in the in the second incarnation as it was in the first incarnation. And I think the stories were better because it was stories about uh, older people, especially older gay people, Will and Jack, and the loneliness maybe and what's involved with that. But um, uh, it's it. I I I guess by dint of the uh, the reboot, it probably wouldn't work if we rebooted it again, because it's uh, it doesn't carry the same cachet that it had back in when we originally started. I, I sometimes think along Michelle's lines that so one of the shows I've watched during the pandemic was the entire run of MASH. I also watched all of Cheers, but specifically <laughs> MASH. And I'm thinking Alan Alda's Hawkeye character would so be me too today oh, if yeah. uh, that show ran. Well, okay. So last night after reading in the book, your remarks about the two live episodes of Will and Grace that you did, I watched them on Amazon Prime and they were absolutely delightful. Um, they're wonderful. Um, but as you know, this was a new thing for you. You know, you've, you've obviously, though you've directed for TV as if it were a stage show, um, having it all live was a bit of a uh, uh, high wire act for you. Talk about that. How did it go? And, and uh, did it feel that way through the whole thing? Or was it just once you had to get it started, then you were like, okay, I know what I'm doing. Uh, it, it was really difficult because on an ordinary production of Will and Grace, you you know you shoot the show with four film cameras and then you edit it, so you know you can edit out the mistakes and you can lose the bad shots and everything like that. But on this show, there's no editing. I'm doing the editing live. I'm snapping. I'm snapping the show, which means when I snap my fingers, I can't do that anymore. So I have a clicker, looks like a frog. So when I click the the, the technical director pushes a camera and that camera comes on. So the audience is seeing my live cut. So it was very difficult for me because I was not trained that way. And what I had to do was rehearse the show over and over and over again until it became roped for me so that I could, I knew what shot was coming next, but I could also, you know, know that that's, there's going to be a laugh there. So I need to, I don't want the technical director cutting because he has a script too. And he sees cut at the end of a line. I don't want him cutting necessarily on that line. I want him waiting, waiting for staying on the person who said the joke to wait and then cutting away. So, so it took me on both shows, both live uh, will and graces took me a while to, to get out of my uh, uncomfortable zone. And then I, um, I, I didn't even, Later on, I even uh, uh, did myself great more trouble by doing the live shows for Norman Lear, which were an hour, two half hours that I had to do. And if, uh, you know, I was I was sweating bullets, but I had a great assistant director and a great TD. And again, I had to run those shows over and over and over again to get familiar with them. So I knew when to cut. Big question for you as we wind down. And again, we could spend hours and hours talking about all the great shows. 
you've worked on. Um, your thoughts on TV today? Uh, here, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting a short answer, by the way. <laughs> oh, well, here's what I like to describe it. And it applies not only to comedy and drama and reality and everything like that. Uh, when I started out, uh, there were th- uh, there were three networks and 30 great comedy writers. Now there are 500 networks and 30 great comedy writers. So everything is spread so thin now. People are doing shows that are not, haven't learned how to do them, haven't spent time apprenticing, writing on shows, and then coming and doing their own shows. It takes a while. It takes a while to do it. So. You don't have to appeal to the twenty to, to the twenty six million people that Cheers appeal to every week. You don't have to do that. You have to appeal to fifty thousand people, five hundred thousand people. You know, you could do a really specific show about, you know, doctors who were born in Iowa who play golf and uh, and uh, go to the movies and are married to blonde girls, you can find that specific niche and do a show about that. You'll get 10,000 viewers. And on some network, on some streaming services, that's good. So it's it's changed. It is changed. You know, there are still big hits, but there's not as many as there used to be. And the numbers aren't what they once were. You know, one show we've, we've passed over, we've passed over a number of them, but one was, of course, Frasier, the long-lasting uh, spinoff from Cheers. And around the time it was winding down, I remember reading some TV critic who who praised it, saying it was something like one of the last adult sitcoms. And he didn't mean adult in sexual ways; he just meant adult. And and it was they they didn't aim for the lowest common denominator. They were doing serious stuff. As you've, you've mentioned a, a few times in the book about being, will, being willing to write above where the audience might be and not worry about that. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm kind of turning this also to, to Michelle's question. is just like, just like, could in this world of streaming and, uh, you know, 500 channels and all that kind of stuff, can a... Is there is one of those niches or one or more of those niches for a sophisticated adult comedy? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Larry's show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, is a sophisticated adult comedy. I mean, he, you know, it's his own show out of his own head. And he doesn't care if people, some people don't get it or anything like that. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a market for it. It's not as big a market as it was before. But there's a market for it. Uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, that, that character of Frasier and Niles, you know, Frasier became Sam Malone on Frasier and Niles became Frasier. Uh, you, you don't you don't want to write down. You want to write up. And, you know, it's the same thing that happened on the Big Bang Theory. I mean, Jimmy Parsons playing Sheldon would say stuff that nobody understood but you knew the intent. And again, on Cheers with Diane, you knew the intent. With Frazier, you knew the intent. And, I, you know, I think there's a market for shows like that. I just don't know why people aren't making them anymore. And, you know, the sitcom is, 
you know, there's only four, there's only three or four of them, the neighborhood and uh, the Connors, which I love and uh, uh, call me cat is a, a live action, you know, situational comedy, but, uh, but I don't know why people are not making them anymore. There are many shows, again, that we could sit and talk about. Um, so please pick up a copy of Directing James Burroughs. I think that, you know, brings us back to what we love about um, sitcom television. And at the same time, uh, all these all these stories, James, that you tell in the book, I very much appreciate. On that note, you know, to write a memoir, uh, you know, why now after so many successful shows and so many stories built, and I'm guessing that there are many stories that you left out. Um, yeah, there are some on the tawdry side, but um, uh, it, you know, I had a lot. To, my wife's been begging me to write a book forever because uh, and I keep telling these stories, and people keep laughing, and uh, she's tired of hearing them. So she said, put them in a book where people can read them so I don't have to hear them anymore. And uh, uh, so I, you know, COVID hit. Nobody was working. And she said, if you don't call your agent, I will. So I called my agent. He hooked me up with a literary agent who hooked me up with Eddie Friedfeld, who was the my ghostwriter. Well, not a ghostwriter. He's on the front page where he should be. And uh, we, I started telling stories. And he was very inquisitive. And as I told stories, more occurred to me. And, uh, you know, we sat and we, we crafted this book. And, you know, it was, there's, there's some instructional stuff in the book. How, you know, how some of the camera work I do. And it's rudimentary, but it's, you know, it's meant as a primer for those who, who you know, maybe want to, to go into the business. But, you know, the you know the stories from my dad and what he taught me and and stuff like that is uh it was great to put it down and uh i'm getting very good reaction especially from my wife <laughs> one of our viewers uh posted on the youtube chat she says my mom was married to dave davis dobie gillis era and i tracked the work you did together for years on many shows from MTM through Taxi. What a powerful team you created. What were the gifts of that? Well, Dave Davis, when I, to go back to when I first met Dave Davis was on, in 1964, I came out to work on a pilot my dad was doing called OK Crackerby, which starred Burl Ives. And I was brought out, I, I, I was brought out to work on it as Burl Ives dialogue coach. And Dave Davis was the associate producer. So I met him. I met him there. And uh, when I, when I came out to California to work out for MTM, which was in 1974, the first person I met was Dave Davis, who was then, co-created the new heart show so he and i you know he was great with me his dad was a wonderful comedy writer phil davis and uh, dave taught me a lot and um again uh I, we went our separate ways and then he 
was on taxi for a year. So I got to meet him there. So, you know, David is one of those highbrow, great writers of comedy and a wonderful man in the editing room. Incredible, incredible with that. And I learned so much from him. Well, I can't believe it, but we um, we <laughs> have Burns are in hours, so I think we have time for a couple of our last questions. So I will ask mine. What are you currently tuning into? What are you watching right now? I'm a huge sports fan. I'm a New York Yankee, New York Giant fan. So yesterday was a bad day for me because they both lost. So that's why I'm so grim right now. Oh. <laughs> We watch, we, you know, we watch a lot of streaming stuff. We, uh, as I said, I watch Curb and, and I watch the Connors. That's the network stuff I watch. But I watch, um, we just got done with uh, Gaslit and uh, Breaking Bad is my favorite all-time show ever. I got to meet Vince Gilligan once and he's, uh, you know, he's from Virginia. He's got a little bit of Southern accent. I never expected that. <laughs> uh, we watched uh, Dope Sick and we watched Ozark because I tuned in originally because Jason Bateman, who I worked with a number of times, the show was Ozark. It had a K in it. I thought it was a funny show. And boy, was I disappointed. But I, I loved I loved watching it. And uh, that's what we uh, that's what I watch. I Blast me! I haven't seen The Crown. I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I watched a couple of years of Sopranos. Never, never finished it. So people hate me for that. But hey, hate me. <laughs> okay, so then, uh, what's next on your plate? Or do you have programs lined up you're going to be shooting um, that you can tell us anything about? Um. Uh, I'll I'll wait till pilots. I did a pilot in March that didn't go. And uh, supposedly Norman and Brent Miller, Norman Lear and Brent Miller are going to do another live show. So maybe in March and then I'll look for a pilot. But uh, other than that, I'm kind of uh, semi-retired. I, uh, um, you know, semi-retired is such a weird word. It sounds like you put your truck away, doesn't it? You know? It's so it just occurred to me. So I'm, you know, I I I play golf and I I read. I read as much as I can and I try to exercise every day. And uh that's about that that's it. So I have nothing on the horizon. Well, James, thank you so much for taking time out and chatting with us about directing James Burroughs. Uh I like I said, if you don't have a copy, you don't you haven't read it yet, you should. And one of the things I love about the book also is um, what James said, you know, there's some stuff in there that he offers for, well, I guess if you get the book, it's not necessarily for free, but (laughs) the intellectual property part of it all, which I think so many of us who, if you do want to break into the industry, there's things like that about, you know, character development, building characters, relationships, and how that all comes together in a TV show. So make sure you all, pick up your copy. And John, I'll give you um, the last words. Well, thank you again to our special guest on today's program, James Burroughs, author of Directed by James Burroughs. Last but not least, thanks to all of you watching or listening to this program. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org. 
Stay safe and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye.